think the United States has been fighting far too much and we've got to choose another path. 135 countries at least where the United States has, has gone to war. Do you think we could have avoided all the wars that we had? The United States is not safer and the world is not safer because there are 750 bases around the world. Why do you think we're in so many different places? The Bush administration did not need to respond to that those crimes with war. And the vast majority of people in Afghanistan had no responsibility for the attacks of 9-11. You attack our land and you want me to sit there and not do anything about it? By giving them the war they wanted, that was an achievement for them. ISIS is a product of the U.S. war in Iraq. We created ISIS. Aren't we in too deep to play nice now? My guest today is a professor at American University, and he recently wrote a book called The United States of War, A Global History of America's Endless Conflict from Columbus to the Islamic State. David, thank you so much for being a guest on Vaitainment. Patrick, I'm, I'm really thrilled. I'm excited for the conversation. Yes, uh, I am probably more excited than you are because this is something that I want to uh, take a deep dive on. So, David, for viewers who don't know your background, I mean, there's a lot of things you can write a book about. You can write a book about Pokemon cards. You can write a book about, you know, who's the greatest basketball player of all time. You can buy, write a you know, book on, you know, caviar, studying the history of caviar. What inspired you to want to write a book on the United States of War, a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to Islamic State? In short, I think we have to stop fighting. I think the United States has been fighting far too much for far, far too long, and we've got to choose another path. Uh, you know, more than a quarter of the country now has no memory of a time when the United States was not at war. More than a quarter of the country cannot remember a day in their lives when the United States was not at war. We've been at war for 20 consecutive years since the US invaded Afghanistan in 2001. And when I began research for this book, I thought this was fairly exceptional in US history. And I came to find that actually this is the norm in US history, that the United States military has been fighting in almost every year of US history since independence. Um, all but 11 years, the United States military has been involved in some kind of a war or other form of combat. And I put simply, I, we, we need to stop fighting. Uh, this, the, the fighting, this really endless forever war that we've been fighting has not only damaged and taken the lives of millions of people around the world, it, it's been in ways that I think are often invisible to us harming the vast majority of people in the United States in profound ways. Did you say we've, we've been at war with somebody from inception 1776 till today, except for 11 years? That's right. That's right. And that's based on a, a list that the Congressional Research Service puts together um, and which I've updated uh, with the help of others. Uh, yeah. Um, some form of war. Years? Sorry. What were those 11 years? Uh, there were a few years at the end of the 19th century, a few years during the, the Roosevelt administration when he, uh, in addition to the, the New Deal, uh, brought into effect what he called the good neighbor policy, where he ended a, a long pattern of invading Latin American countries in particular, a few years in the, the late 1970s. Um, but, you know, by some accounts, the United States has never been at peace. Uh, there are other, you know, CIA interventions, um, coups. Um, other forms of, of warfare that the United States has been engaged in, arguably, in, in every year since independence. 
And this is not a democratic or Republican thing. It's just our leaders like to go to war. They just, so do you think it's because uh, uh, our nature from day one, when we fought away, you know, from our independence from Britain, it was kind of like in our nature to constantly be in that fight mode that that's just in our genes, in the DNA, in the fabric of what America was founded on? Or do you think some of it is like we're causing it and it's self-inflicted? I think it's definitely self-inflicted. I think uh, it is deeply rooted in US history, but it's definitely not in our genes or our DNA or in some sort of inherent US American character. I think uh, there are patterns that were, were created uh, and actually that predate the creation of the United States. The history I, I tell in the United States of War goes back before uh, the creation of the United States and shows how the United States emerged out of European empires that colonized the, the Western Hemisphere, the Americas, um, specifically and most importantly, the US, of course, emerges out of the British Empire, gains its independence from Britain, but models itself. US leaders model the United States after the European empires, and then they attempt to, to build a, an expansionist empire that uh, came to conquer territories across North America. And this put into, into place a, a system of permanent or almost permanent war. It's important to point out that, that no war was inevitable, no war is inevitable. Um, this is not a pattern that has to continue forever. And that's why I, you know, again, that's why I wrote you said the last thing, what you just said, you said no war is inevitable and no war can be avoided. Uh, no war is inevitable. And um, no, in, indeed, we can avoid future wars. And that's why I wrote the book, because I think we need to choose a different path. Uh, US leaders have avoided wars in the past, often because large groups of people pressured them not to go to war, including sometimes members of the, the US military. Uh, and we need to, to choose a path. Like I said before, we need to stop fighting. Uh, we need to break this, this pattern. Um, and I, I believe we can do it, uh, but we need to we need to choose a fundamentally different course for this country. Yeah, I'm looking at the stats right now when you said this. So I, my mind went to budget, right? Okay, so 2020, our budget was uh, $778 billion. And we're at the top. That's Statista, the website, right? Number two is China, $252 billion, which is about a third. Then we got India is only $72 uh, billion, which is uh, less than a tenth. And you have Russia, $61 billion but 12th, UK 59 billion, Saudi 57 billion, Germany 53 billion, and then France, Japan, South Korea, Italy, Australia, Canada, Israel, Brazil at 20 billion, right? And we're at 778. Um, minimum, minimum. That's a minimum, yeah. And again, whatever statistics, are not a left or right wing, uh, it's, it's like a gallop. You kind of try, it's like pure research. It's not, the, it's not the Times, it's not the Wall Street Journal, it's not Fox or CNN, it's, it's pretty relatively just giving you stats there. Yeah. Uh, so, so based on some of the stuff they said, out of all the wars, like, you know, sometimes when you're raising your kids, you try to do your, like the other day, my son got into a big fight with a kid in school, pretty bad fight, nine-year-old. So I sat down and I went and sat down with, spoke with them. And I'm the guy that one of the affirmations we have with our kids is one, we don't bully. And two, we don't get bullied. You need to stand up for yourself. So, and our kids go to conservative school. So, you know, it's like, well, we don't fight. We don't do this. And so everything is like, we love each other. But uh, so I'm also the guy that will say, that guy did that to you three times. If you don't stand up for yourself, you ain't going to get video games for a month. You better stand up for yourself because the last thing I want my kids to be is a bully. And then 
So he got into a fight, bad fight, comes back, scratches on his back, not looking good. Everyone's concerned. He doesn't want to tell us what happened. Finally, I told him what happened. So he told me what happened. I said, buddy, what you just did, this one's your fault. Don't you think? He says, no, daddy, this one's my fault. I said, so you call that kid that word. That's a pretty painful word. He says, no, I know, daddy. I said, tomorrow I want you to go apologize to this kid. He says, you want me to apologize? And this is not a kid that apologizes. It's not easy for him to say, I'm sorry. He's the guy that's very proud. So, so he goes the next day and he apologizes. I said, what happened? He says, because I, I told him, I said, if you apologize, if he continues to bully you, you got to hit him in the face. Okay. But if you apologize to him and he forgives you, then you guys are going to become best. I said, there's a 99% chance he's going to leave you alone and you guys will be friends. He goes to school, tells the kid, I'm sorry. Next thing you know, he says, we're best friends now. So fantastic. Great. So we as parents want our kids to avoid as many fights as possible. You don't want to go to a bar and start a fight with anybody. You know, you do it to the wrong person. You can have a nose looking like mine. It's not a good idea. It's not a good look. So here's the point. How many of these wars that we had, based on your research, based on your opinion, how many of them could we have avoided? I don't think it's possible we could have avoided all of them. But which one of them, based on your opinion and research, could we have avoided? I think almost all of them. Uh, first of all, I, ho I hope your son is okay. Um, I'm sorry to hear about, about his fight. Um, he's, he's actually doing great. Thanks for asking, though. Good, good. Um, no, I think it's important to point out that the, the vast majority of U.S. wars have been offensive wars of choice. When Japan attacked Pearl Harbor and other parts of the United States in 1941, this is the exception in U.S. history. Uh, defensive wars are, are, are not part of our history. Offensive wars, like the wars the United States has launched since 2001, are the pattern, are the norm. Um, and so I, I, I think the United States could have and, and needs to uh, make the avoidance of war its foreign policy, needs to make peace building its foreign policy rather than assuming that there will be future wars, which I think far too many leaders you civilian leaders, military leaders assume. They assume that the United States will be fighting in perpetuity. And that's, in my mind, truly, truly frightening. And that's a big part of the problem. We could have avoided all of them. Do you think we could have avoided all the wars that we had? Again, I, I think the, the vast majority. Um, you know, if you, if you look at the list, and I, I mean, maybe it's, it, I've heard it's, it's helpful to, let me just read a sample of the countries that the United States has invaded and gone to war with in, in U.S. history. Just start with our neighbors, Mexico. U.S. has gone to war with or invaded Mexico 10 times. Canada, 11 times. Uh, Panama, 24 times. Uh, Peru, the Seminole, uh, the Cherokee, Delaware, Greece, meaning the country of Greece, uh, the Apache, Turkey, uh, Hawaii, of course, Nicaragua, Samoa, the Philippines, China, Honduras, Haiti, Vietnam, Cambodia, Laos, Afghanistan, Colombia, Libya, Niger, Yemen, Iraq, Kenya, Syria, um, and the list goes on and on. 135 countries at least where the United States has, has gone to war. Um, again, in, in 234 out of the 235 years in U.S. history. Uh, and these have been wars of choice, often wars of expansion, often wars to protect economic interests, to advance the economic interests of elites or, or uh, businesses. Uh, and these are wars that by and large have not benefited the, the vast majority of people in the United States. 
Yeah, I mean, I, I, would you agree that most people are are for avoiding wars on all poli uh, on all political ends? I would just say most people, if they could avo avoid a war, they'd want to. In a certain sense, yes. I think I think I think that is something we can virtually all agree on. Um, but the actions of so many U.S. leaders uh, seem, again, to to assume that the United States will will continue to go to war and will will fight. Uh, essentially a forever war, as people often refer to it now. Uh, and, and the choices U.S. leaders have made, beginning with the budget, and it's really important that you pointed to the budget, the U.S. military budget is at least as large as the next 11 countries combined, mm -hmm. um, including China, yep. as you pointed out. But most yep. of those 11 countries are actually U.S. allies. Um, these are not enemies. Uh, the choices that U.S. leaders have made about beginning with, with the U.S. military budget has actually made it more likely that the United States would go to war. And one of the major arguments what I show in, in, in my book, The United States of War, is that in addition to these huge military budgets, the pattern of building U.S. military bases abroad, the pattern of building U.S. military bases on other people's territory outside the United States has actually made it more likely the United States would go to war. And this is a longstanding pattern that dates to independence. Um, but, but especially now where the United States has around 750 military bases outside the 50 states in Washington, D.C. This is a permanent infrastructure. In, in 70 of war. plus countries, by the way. So that's exactly this is a, a permanent infrastructure of war that is making it more likely we're going to wage more wars. Yeah, I, I don't disagree there, because if you think about that, so let's just say we have 700 to 800 in 70 plus countries. Uh, have you done the research on how many uh, uh, bases China has outside of uh, China? I have, I have. Yeah, and it is again a good comparison. Uh, China has one base in Djibouti, one foreign yep. military base in Djibouti. Yep. It has five other bases on human-made islands in the South China Sea. Yep. You could count bases in Tibet as well, but a tiny handful of bases compared to this collection of 750 to 800 uh, bases abroad that the United States has maintained, and we've had even more in the past. And Djibouti is is the uh, uh, choke point. It's uh, you know they're trying to protect the let's just say oil because they rely seventy percent of their oil they get it from there. So that kind of makes sense. Let's just say they want to protect themselves. But of the seven hundred fifty bases that we have, okay, that's kind of like renting a bedroom from you know, uh, 750 other families and living in their house to see what they're up to. So how, is the wife good? Is the husband, is the kids are good? Everybody's good? Okay, good. Okay, guys, I'm just watching you guys. You know, it, it essentially is kind of like that, you know, and obviously some places we offer protection, but if we were to, do you actually know the budget? I, I'm assuming you would probably know the number on this. How much does it cost us to keep those 750 bases active in those 80 plus countries? Another great question. Yeah, as of my last estimate, around $51 billion a year. $51 billion a year. This is a huge budget. It rivals that of the State Department uh, and is larger than the budget of almost any uh, government agency other than the Pentagon itself and the Veterans Administration. Uh, and this, again, shows you the priorities that US leaders have, have put into place. Why and again, it's part of what needs to change. Why do we do that? Why, why are we everywhere? Are we the mother? Are we the, you know, daddy? We're looking out for everybody. Are we, the, are they asking us, are some of the countries safer because we're there? Why do you think we're in so many different places? 
Well, in short, I think the United States is not safer and the world is not safer because there are 750 bases around the world. Uh, I think in, in a whole variety of ways, and, and there are people across the political spectrum who, who agree with me, these bases are actually undermining US security. Uh, most of these bases date to around World War II and the early days of the Cold War. And in many ways, once they've been established, they've been extremely difficult to close. Uh, we have not decided to put these bases around the world. US, a small group of, of US leaders, mostly white male elite dudes like me um, who work in the US government have decided uh, to put these bases around the world. Uh, and in a whole variety of ways, we could be protecting ourselves much more effectively. We could be spending our military dollars more effectively, positioning our military more effectively, and we could be protecting ourselves against the real threats that face the United States, beginning with, oh, I don't know, uh, pandemic preparedness. Um, if we think, you know, if we just take in a portion of that $51 billion a year we spend on military bases abroad, just ma maintaining them, uh, if we'd spent a portion of that to prepare for pandemics, uh, to build adequate supplies of PPE, uh, to provide universal health care. We just imagine how many hundreds of thousands of lives we could have saved just in the COVID pandemic alone. You know, uh, uh, that sounds noble when you say that. And in every part of my body, I go to, okay, uh, I get it. I want to be noble as well. That makes sense to me. But then you hear the troops say, we're going to pull the troops from Afghanistan, the withdrawal. You remember this one? It was in April. They were talking about it. And both Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice on opposing ends, neither one of them supported it. They said, that's not a good move to make. And we should stay there because if we pull out, things could get pretty ugly. You know, it could be, you know, more war, more, you know, others could take over and we're going to empower those guys. Somebody may say, well, David, I, I, I'm all for your noble causes, but if we pull troops out of all these different places and say everybody has to solve their own problems themselves and a full-on war breaks out, proxy wars, manipulative wars, does that affect us at all? And if it doesn't, okay, in what ways do you think it doesn't affect us? But if it does, should we just stay there? So for, first of all, I, I think you know Hillary Clinton and Condoleezza Rice should have very little credibility when it comes to speaking on matters of foreign policy. These are the architects of the last 20 years of war. These are some of the architects of the wars in Afghanistan and Iraq and, for example, Libya, which has uh, turned into a terrible proxy war and uh, uh, you know, a dissolved state, effectively, in, in, in Libya that we're Hillary Clinton was the, the leading light in, in, in launching that war. Um, the, the, the fact is we are in a state of, of warfare in many parts of the globe, uh, wars that often the United States military has launched or gotten deeply involved in, uh, in as well as proxy wars. Uh, and continuing with the status quo is just going to continue the, these wars. The United States needs to shift its emphasis from warfare to diplomacy, to trying to end these wars diplomatically. Uh, you know, yes, um, Af Afghanistan looks terrible right now, uh, but the solution was not to just keep the United States military in Afghanistan in perpetuity, 
which is essentially what we've been, well, what US leaders have been doing for the last 20 years. Another path needs to be pursued. And, and I'm, I'm glad the Biden administration announced the withdrawal of most, not all US troops from Afghanistan, um, but it needs to go much farther to try to reduce uh, and minimize the, the violence and damage that is going on there, uh, as well as in the other war zones where the United States should rapidly remove itself. The two eras you said when the 11 years that we didn't have war, you you said uh, FDR was one of them. I'm assuming you were talking about FDR, the new, uh, uh, so you were talking about him. And then late 70s, I'm assuming you're talking about Carter. Were you referencing Carter? Okay, so Carter. So do you think Carter, who I write about him in a book, his his campaign was what? It was human rights, right? It was all about human rights, human rights, human rights. And it was looking at two main countries, right? One of them was Iran, one of them was Cuba. And uh, extremely, uh, uh, I don't think there are many people that would call this man a bad man. He was a sweet man, smart man, intelligent man. But history says he wasn't the best president we ever had. He's typically on the bottom list of best presidents we had, not on the top. FDR, different story. You'll hear a lot of liberals will say FDR is maybe the greatest president we've had in the last hundred some years and many great arguments for it. Some will say, no, he changed the game. He brought taxes. He brought this. He brought that. Fine. But we've seen the FDR side. Do you think Carter uh, uh, did a good job with his presidency? And if yes, which parts of it? It's hmm. a good question. Well, uh, avoiding war, avoiding the launching of, of new wars, I think, was uh, absolutely Absolutely, uh, an effective part of his presidency. And if we just look at, you know, a, a death count, um, I think the United States inflicted less damage on the war, uh, on, on the excuse me, less damage through war on the world than under other presidents, including uh, Ronald Reagan, who followed President Carter, or Presidents Ford and Nixon, um, who of course helped. Uh, you know, especially Nixon and Johnson before him beginning even earlier with uh, President Kennedy is so lauded, uh, you know, the, the disaster in, in Vietnam uh, took somewhere between two and three million lives. So I think just in terms of the damage inflicted, I think President Carter uh, limited the damage that the United States was in, in, inflicting. Now, he also was responsible for getting the United States involved in Afghanistan. The, the last 20 years of war really date to 1979. And the United States government trying to lure uh, the Soviet Union into what it described as the Afghan trap to give them their own Vietnam. And indeed they did. And then under Presidents Carter and Reagan, uh, the US proceeded to back the Mujahideen, a word that people have probably have been hearing in recent days uh, or weeks, um, the Taliban. They described themselves as Mujahideen, holy warriors. Um, where, where do they come from? They come from the CIA backed campaign to challenge the Soviet occupation of Afghanistan in the 1980s. And this, I think, shows us the, the kind of blowback that, that our longstanding policy has, has, has sown. Um, and I think it shows how counterproductive the longstanding foreign policy of the United States has been, that it has often created new enemies, uh, that the wars and proxy wars that you mentioned before have actually created more militants, created more people who would use terrorist acts against the United States and, and, and US allies. Uh, this policy has really done very little other than to ensure the perpetuation of permanent war. Yeah, so uh, 
you know, when I look at uh, uh, Carter, Carter directly affected my life. So for example, I'm an October 1878 baby. October 1878 is the peak of Iran revolution. It's when Sinema Rex fire happened in Abadan, Iran, right? And Khomeini, through his tapes, has gotten millions of people in Iran that have been listening to this tape. He's sending his tapes from Paris, France, when he was in exile there for many years. And gradually, they're starting to turn against the Shah, right? Now, uh, Carter, who went there December 31st of 1977, and he had a toast with the Shah. And, you know, he says, uh, you know, the Middle East is a safer place because the Shah relationship is a great. He just kind of build up the Shah, and it was very interesting. And then leaves when the Shah needed help, Kissinger and Carter didn't support. They're like, no, leave them alone, let them do their own thing. So he kind of followed your playbook. It's saying, well, guys, these guys got to figure out on their own. You know, we can't send more troops. We can't help them out. And then let them handle their own problems. So, okay. Uh, well, the Shah goes in exile. Okay. Khomeini comes and takes over. Khomeini comes in and takes over. All those political prisoners that the Shah had, the 3,000 of them, Carter asked them to release them. He released them. Many of them are the, today's communists and today's, uh, uh, what do you call it, uh, Al-Qaeda. Many of them are ISIS who were there. And a lot of the folks who had those ideas, we had them in prison, but Carter wanted to release them. He releases them. The next 10 years, half a million lives. Now, that's just not half a million lives in Iran, but you're talking US, Iran, many other people. And he did the same thing with Cuba. And Cuba released 125,000 political prisoners that came to Miami on that Muriel boat lift and the unemployment in Miami went to 50% for 12 months. There was no gas during that time, gas shortages. Miami in the early eighties was not a place to be. It was an ugly place to be, but these were noble causes that Carter had. So sometimes for me, this is the feeling I get and, and I don't know who's right and who's not right. So a kid goes through a challenge. So my position may be stand up for yourself, but a mother may say, baby, you don't need to fight if you don't need to fight. Who's right? I think they're both right. But sometimes you're going to make the wrong decision. You know, in some positions, you do need to stand up for yourself. In some positions, you do need to let it go. Some people, if you don't stand up for yourself, they're going to keep bullying you and they're going to come and take everything you have. In some positions, if you, you know, you could have the opportunity to not even cost anybody's life. You could have just been like, listen, let's figure this out. Let's go in a room and talk for a few hours until we can negotiate something. Let's just not go to work because people's lives are going to be lost. Do you think there's a little bit of that? contradiction where if somebody hasn't been in the room to see how ugly war is, that there's actually bad people that want to kill you and your people. There is actually bad people that will do anything to make your life a living kill. And if you don't stand up to them, it's like what Reagan said, we don't negotiate with terrorists. They're going to come and take everything you got from you if they could. So do you think there's a little bit of that contradiction in there where if you're too soft and you think it looks good long-term, you're going to cost, it could end up costing you a lot of lives? No, I, th I, th I think, I mean, there are a few things I would, I would wonder about the, uh, and, and would want to see the evidence that, that people released by the Shah in the 1970s became ISIS or became Al-Qaeda. Uh, I, I would want to see that evidence. And similarly, my understanding of, of the Cuban migration to, to Miami is that actually the Miami uh, economy was able to absorb large numbers of of uh, refugees, people fleeing Cuba, because essentially the more people who, who migrated actually created new economic opportunities. But that, that's not the core of your question. Core of your question, and I, I think in a way I would, I would turn it back on you, is to, to ask, you know, who, who is bullying the United States? And more importantly, 
who is really a threat to the United States. I, I think one of the longstanding problems we've seen since the 1970s and really throughout the Cold War, but to this day, is a kind of fear-mongering about others, a kind of inflation of the threat of others. Uh, the Soviet Union was, was a, another empire like the United States and, and did pose something of a threat, but its threat was consistently exaggerated by US leaders, especially US leaders who wanted to inflate the size of military budgets, uh, let alone you know, a small group of, of militants in, in the Middle East, um, which uh, whether, whether Al-Qaeda or, or another group, um, they do not pose uh, any kind of existential threat to the United States and inflating the threat uh, of others is really a, a dangerous uh, strategy that uh, has, has really um, only created more trouble uh, and, and more war over time. So you don't think they uh, pose any threat to the United States? Who, who in particular? The ISIS or Al-Qaeda? I think they pose a very limited threat to the United States. I think they pose a greater threat to the United States today than they did in 2001. I mean, what is the, the, the last 20 years of war have had many effects. 15,000 US military personnel dead. That's, that's uniform personnel and, and contractors. Um, hundreds of thousands coming back with PTSD, traumatic brain injuries. Uh, the death toll in, in the war zones has been far, far worse. Three to four million people likely dead in Afghanistan, Iraq, Pakistan, uh, Yemen, uh, Syria. Uh, in the part of the war the United States has been involved in. Um, tens of thousands, tens of millions injured in these war zones. And $7 trillion, $7 trillion that the United States has spent on these wars in the last 20 years. What has it produced in addition to all that death and suffering and what we didn't spend $7 trillion on? There are more militant groups now than there were in 2001. This war has, on its own, in its own terms, been a complete and utter catastrophe and disaster. And I don't, I don't think people, I mean, we, we, you know, we went back to, to the 70s and, and Vietnam. I don't think people see the last 20 years of war in the same way they saw Vietnam as a, the disaster that it was. The last 20 years of war has been at least as disastrous, at least as catastrophic for the United States, for the world, as the US wars in, in Vietnam and Southeast Asia. And I think we have to, to recognize that because I, indeed, I think there are greater threats to the United States today than there were in 2001, but I think they are still very minimal. We're talking about a small group of people. ISIS controls almost no territory now. Um, and Al-Qaeda is, is a, a fraction of a, what it once was. Um, so I, I think it's really dangerous to overinflate the problems and to respond to these problems with war. That, that was the first mistake the Bush administration made. The attacks of 9-11 took about 3,000 lives. Terrible for the, the people affected, for the families affected, absolutely. The United States, the Bush administration, did not need to respond to that, those crimes with war by invading a country that had no, I mean, the vast majority of people in Afghanistan had no responsibility for the attacks of 9-11. The Taliban gave sanctuary to Al-Qaeda, but was not involved in planning or orchestrating the attacks of 9-11. The United States should have responded to those crimes of that day, September 11th, 2001, as crimes, responded with criminal justice responses, with criminal justice agents. Does that do, um, how do you do that? What, 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 what does that, these are people that are willing to put their lives on the line to take 
to 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 make show your weakness these are people that you that's a achievement if you do that to them how are you going to get to the people that did what they did to to us no that's an, indeed i think that the problem was that that by giving them the war they wanted that was an achievement for them uh, in the past us governments have responded to terrorist crimes as crimes and research shows beyond the us around the world that responding with warfare tends not to be a very effective response to terrorist acts. Uh, that responding with diplomacy, with intelligence gathering, with criminal justice responses is far more effective than war. Um, by giving Al-Qaeda and Osama bin Laden a war, it gave them exactly what they wanted in a much larger platform for recruiting, um, for building their movement, uh, and I think the past 20 years shows how what a disastrous choice that was. Yeah, I mean, listen, Osama bin Laden bragged about the fact that he made America spend $3 trillion to kill him. I mean, the guy's life was worth $3 trillion. That's a lot of money for one guy. So in reality, he won because he depleted America's bank account. There's no question about that. But, but go back to and we should think about what, you know, the three trillion. When oh, I, I don't high. disagree with you. I totally agree trillion. with you. Yeah. But there's a part of that that's also America's uh, 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 foundation, uh, you know, how America was founded. Like, look at the movie Saving Private Ryan. So I'm from 101st Airborne Division. That We watched Saving Private Ryan before the world watched Saving Private Ryan because it was our unit. So they brought us in a auditorium, 600 soldiers. We watched it like, oh, my gosh, this is my unit. We're all crying. I do anything for my country. But then afterwards, there was a debate. Why sacrifice, you know, eight, nine, ten people's lives for a private just because he's the only one that's left in the family? Why do we do that? What was that all about? That's not worth it. Why take those guys' lives just because they have other siblings? And that's a real debate, by the way. Somebody can sit there and say, you kind of do make a point here. But no, you because this family cannot continue. And that mom and dad sacrificed their two sons. That went there, one is no longer around, one of them is. We got to go save this private Ryan kid. So it's a great discourse when it goes back and forth. But that's, you know, what we were founded on. That's America's foundation. So part of this is you attack our land and you want me to sit there and not do anything about it. And, and okay, if I send crime, like crim treat them as criminals, oh, my gosh. I mean, that's, uh, uh, that's uh, exactly what they're looking for because... You know, uh, 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 one guy uh, was talking about there was these uh, debate taking place uh, on war between a America and Middle East. It was a strong debate. And one fellow said, you know why, uh, uh, you know, uh, Al-Qaeda, ISIS, these guys are not afraid of the uh, U.S.? They said, why? He says, because America's culture is very forgiven. We're not forgiven. We're going to venge. We're going to come after you. And we're going to get you for what you did for us. So meaning... Let's just say today we start becoming noble as a country, okay? You all of a sudden decide to become a noble nation. Hypothetically, we become a noble nation today. Guys, we're going to be noble. Pull everybody out, 750 units. You're coming home. We're going to save that $51 billion. We don't need to be invading. We're all back home. Let's put the money in a different place. We don't need to do this anymore. Fine. We bring the budget down from $770 billion to, say, $150 Let's match China, $250 billion. We save ourselves a half a trillion dollars. Fine. How many enemies have we killed? How many people are, you know, preparing their vengeance against us? You think they've forgotten? You, you think they've forgotten how many kids' lives were taken? You, you think there's people there that lost a brother, a daughter, a, a wife, 
a family member that's you, a father that's a six-year-old kid that's now 22 years old for 16 years. All he's been thinking about is America's the enemy. I'm going to get you. I know people like I lived around these types of people when I was in Iran for 10 years. You can say, listen, we don't want to fight anymore. We're so sorry. We're going to play the noble card right now. Dude, I don't care what you're going to do. You kill my dad. I'm going to do whatever I can to ruin your life. So part of me wants to say, David, noble. There's the other part of me that says, aren't we in too deep to play nice now? I think, you know, I think the, the uh, picture you're, you're painting uh, is, is one that is a recipe for perpetual war forever. That, yes, we need to protect ourselves under any circumstances. We need to have a U.S. military. It should be focused on protecting U.S. citizens and protecting the borders of the United States, not on creating an offensive platform for war that has military bases around the world and is ready to launch wars on a moment's notice, which is what we have now. And I think what the, the, the recipe that you're describing is just gonna produce more people like that 16 year old whose father was killed who wanted to uh, do violence against US citizens or the United States. I, I think we need to choose another path. Uh, the last 20 years of war has just created more people uh, who would wish to inflict harm on the United States, um, both by killing, frequently assassinating militants, but frequently by taking the lives of innocent civilians who then have had a grudge against the United States. This strategy that the United States has been pursuing has been completely counterproductive and has really put us at more risk as US citizens and as a country. Um, and that's what needs to change. Yeah, there's a part of me that doesn't disagree with that. I, I don't, uh, I won't sit there and say, listen, all this shit you guys did before us, we're putting up, it's like all the spending, all this money you guys keep spending, all these stimulus you keep giving away thinking it's a good thing. You print 40% of all the money that's been printed in the history of America was printed the last 15 months. Okay, who the hell is gonna pay that back? Who, who's gonna pay that back? I mean, inflation, oh, it's just gonna last a few more months. No, it's not. You can only keep interest rates so low for so long, no matter what Powell is talking about or Yellen is talking about. We're going to pay a price for this. Stuff is going to go up. People are going to be one day waking up saying, how am I supposed to keep up in a marketplace? So what I am saying is, if you take that position of 270, 200 and how old are we? 70 uh, to whatever, 245 years of playing the tough guy. And I dare you to do something. I'm going to whoop your, you know what, if you come after me and watch what we're going to do to you. Watch what, if we play that role. I, 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 um, I think it's very hard to get away from that and play the amicable role because you may be the current person that may be noble, but I'm not upset at you. I'm upset at your father. I'm upset at your grandfather. I'm upset at the president before you or the four presidents before you. So how do we go about So let's have the conversation with ISIS. How do, let's have the conversation with China. Let's have the conversation with these countries. How do you have that conversation with them and be a diplomat? Who does it? Biden does it? Who, who does that? Obama does that? Trump you, dedicate, does. you dedicated as much energy and resources. You actually don't need to dedicate as much resources because diplomacy is, is, is quite cheap comp compared to weapon systems that often we don't need. They're just sinkholes of, of literally billions of dollars. Um, you, you dedicate money to, a, to, to diplomacy, to the State Department, to from 
Biden on down, um, a whole range of people dedicated to resolving conflicts peacefully and diplomatically uh, and, and shift money away from this war machine that we've built. Um, otherwise, we are going to just continue. And I, again, I, I would point to periods in US history when US leaders have chosen different paths. Uh, again, Roosevelt, Franklin Delano Roosevelt, um, he had this good neighbor policy. While people are talking about uh, a Green New Deal, I think we should also bring back Roosevelt's good neighbor policy. And what, what were the tenets of, of his good neighbor policy? It was, you know, as the name suggests, um, being a good neighbor to, to people in the, in the Western hemisphere and around the world. It meant renouncing armed intervention in other countries. It meant renouncing the right to intervene in the affairs of other countries and other peoples. And I think, you know, again, the, the, the sort of portrait of the world you're you're depicting of, of people who are aggrieved at the United States. I mean, that it is inaccurate. There are you know, thousands of people like that because of the last 20 thousands. years of war and, and because of even longer history. But, but those you know, individuals aggrieved against the United States, that is not a, a threat and that should not be the basis for our foreign policy. Are you kidding me? Are you, come on, David, we can't be naive. I mean, you know, do we need a thousand people? You've written a lot about the Holocaust, haven't you? You've, you've been writing about Holocaust for a long time, right? I mean, I, I've seen articles about uh, from what you've written about the Holocaust. So for you, let's just say about your family was directly impacted by it, no, by the Holocaust? Yeah. Okay. So how many Hitlers do you need? You, you don't need thousands. You only need one that is dedicated to his vengeance and that cost millions of people's lives so you know they asked uh, fidel uh, if you wanted to create your revolution again how many thousands of believers would you need he said i would only need one other true believer who believes in 100 percent of what i want to do i would still do the same exact thing i did right now so did uh, hitler so it doesn't take thousands of people who are upset at america it just takes a handful of people that are such true believers that if they want to retaliate 9-11 uh, is a circus act compared to what they can do next uh, uh, on the kind no, of events you want. Again, I'd, I'd, be, I'd be really wary, and, and, and I think we need to be really careful about our, our assessment of threat and our assessment of risk. Uh, you know, Hitler was a risk because he was the most powerful person and led a very large country that had a very large and powerful economy and a military force that, that, that he built up, that is a threat. That is, that is a legitimate threat. But an individual with crazy beliefs on, a, on their own is not a threat, not a, a threat that needs to be taken seriously at the level of designing our foreign policy around. Um, so that, that uh, I think we need to be really careful in, in assessing threats and be careful about exaggerating the threats posed by by other individuals or even groups of people, um, because by inflating threats that really aren't don't pose the risk uh, that that some people might say, we tend to invest money in again in, in our military and in warfare uh, that that could be much better spent addressing the real threats facing the United States again, like pandemics, 
like the, the epidemic of, of homelessness or hunger in this country. They, you know, these are demonstrable problems and, and, and threats, or you know, the decrepit state of our public school system. These are real threats and things that people are living with every day, and they are not being addressed when we're spending trillions of dollars on war. You know, uh, uh, when you're a kid living in a country where you watch outside the window and you see tens of thousands of grown men flagellating their backs with a streak of blood on the streets and they're screaming Matic Bat Omrika, you will have a different perspective of what threat really is all about because you personally witness it. Uh, when you go to Germany and you live at a refugee camp for a couple of years and you kind of see how they view the Middle East and how Iran views USA, you kind of get a different perspective. Uh, when, when you, it's kind of like, uh, there's a couple things that I believe in. Now, you don't have to agree with this, but for me, like, I don't think a person to become a president of the United States, if they've never ran a small business, that they, they had to hire and fire people, or if they've never been in the military, I don't think you're qualified to be the president. Now, that's me. Why, why do I believe that? Because if you've never been in the military, how do you know what my life looks like? How do you know what I do? You're the commander in chief. Maybe we need to, you're the president, but maybe we need to have a, general that's in charge of the military you should not have any right so if a president ever becomes a president who's never been in the military you're just a president you are required to hire somebody that runs the military and he gives you advice but he's the decision maker with the military now you because you've ne never been in the military before you may have 150 million followers on instagram or twitter but you've never been in the military the same as goes as if you've never ran a business you don't know the pains of putting money into a business you don't know the pains of losing your job if you've been a lifelong politician, you're not ready to be a president and understand what it is to be a small business owner. So for me, these types of matters are extremely noble. I would love for your vision to become a reality as long as the other side doesn't give birth to the next Adolf, which history tells us it is filled with men like that who were fully ambitious to go after regimes like ours. And it's, it's very exciting and, and, and easy to propose some of these things while it's pretty safe. Like, for example, I would assume you would probably call Trump a uh, peace president because of what he did with Israel and Palestine, something that no other president could do for 25 years. And under his presidency, I don't think we heard about ISIS a single time versus the past 20 years prior to him. All we ever heard about was ISIS. ISIS. I mean, I think under Obama and Bush, it was ISIS, ISIS, ISIS. So you, you probably, in your notion, you would probably put Trump in the same level as Carter and FDR, would you? No, no. I mean, Trump was a disaster in so many ways. There were a few ways in which he, is, especially when it came to foreign policy, he took some, some helpful steps. Um, he talked about wanting to end the endless wars. He, he didn't. Um, but he didn't start a new war, which was an improvement um, over his predecessors, President Obama and and President Bush, um, you know, I, I would just say, you know, it's, it's it's not just about being noble or pursuing a foreign policy or a way of uh, engaging with the rest of the world that's noble. Um, this is, a, you know, from a self-interested perspective, we need to choose a different path. I mean, let, let's look at ISIS, which you, you've mentioned. ISIS is a product of the U.S. war in Iraq. ISIS did not exist prior to. The U.S. invasion and war in Iraq. We created ISIS. This is, you know, the the, the recipe of, of of permanent bullying and permanent war is only going to create more ISIS. It's only going to make it more likely 
that the kinds of uh, you know leaders that you're 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 concerned about that they might come to come to power and have some some following. Um, we we need to choose a different path unless we want to be fighting it forever. And and let, let me just say say another thing because. I don't want to sort of get caught in a in a, in a cycle of, of of disagreement. You know, the United States is an empire. United States has been an empire. It is. No, it is. It is an empire. Yeah. United States has been an empire virtually since independence, since shortly into, after independence. It's an empire that conquered territory across North America, conquered territories outside North America in the years that followed. Empires don't last forever. Empires don't last forever. And this empire is going to come to an end sooner or later. And my fear is that by continuing to pursue this path of permanent war, we're just bringing about the end of our empire more and more rapidly. Um, we're making it more likely that we are going to dissolve as, a, as an empire and perhaps as a nation in either bankruptcy or a catastrophic, an even more catastrophic war or both. Uh, and that, that, that's the path we're on now. We have a choice and can wind down our empire and choose another path, not just out of nobility or for nobility's sake, but because we want to protect ourselves, we want to protect the well-being of people in the United States, and we want to protect people around the world, rather than harming ourselves and harming people around the world in the profound ways that we have for the last 20 years alone. So, so David, just out of curiosity, so how... Yeah. Let's just say we we shut down the 750. Let's say we're out. We're back here. W what do you do with uh, uh, reinvesting of the money? Would you say we have way too many soldiers? Would you cut down on the amount of soldiers that we have in America? Would you cut down on active duty? Would you uh, say we don't need as many uh, active duty and Navy, Army, Air Force, whatever uh, 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 that we have? Do we go much lower? What do we do with that money? Yeah, so, well, first of all, I think there we should have a conversation about the appropriate size of the US military, especially after withdrawing from Afghanistan. And, and, and as my hope is, as we withdraw ourselves from and, and end the other endless wars. Um, but in, in the short term, we can close bases abroad and bring troops and family members. Remember, there are hundreds of thousands of family members abroad as well bringing them back to the United States, where they would benefit local economies, bringing troops back from Afghanistan and from Germany and uh, from Italy, from South Korea, from Japan, bringing them back to Florida, bringing them back to California, bringing them back to Texas, actually benefits those local economies. And there is excess uh, infrastructure in the United States to accommodate them. We take money saved by closing bases abroad I think first and foremost, we have to look at needs that have been neglected for far too long. Again, beginning with pandemic preparedness, with health care, with ending homelessness in this country, ending hunger in this country, improving our public school system, um, providing opportun more opportunities for people to go to, to college. At the same time, we can be spending money on the military in far wiser ways, um, both in terms of where we invest in infrastructure and in the investments we, we make in weaponry. I mean, we're, you know, the F-35, this complete boondoggle that's created a plane that mostly can't fly, can't engage in, con in combat, but has cost 
billions and billions of dollars that mostly has gone into the pockets of Lockheed Martin. This is just a symbol of the problem that is the military industrial complex or military industrial congressional complex as, as Eisenhower initially called it. Um, it hasn't been part of the conversation, but part of the reason we are trapped in this system of permanent war and this sort of warfare state is because since World War II in particular, US leaders have created and fed a military industrial congressional complex that has led us astray, that has led us down a path of permanent war that has benefited the, the, the weapons manufacturers and, and kept them nice and happy while uh, neglecting human needs that are so painfully felt by so many people in this country. And I, I, wanna, I wanna believe what you're thinking is possible. I wanna believe what you're thinking is possible because my, my, my well, let me ask you a different question. Uh, what do you think about with the way some of our, who would you say America's number one enemy is today? I'm curious, out of your research in the military, if you were to say our top three enemies today, not even enemies, concerns, let's call them concerns, not direct enemies. Number one country would be this, number two would be this, number three would be this, what would yeah. you say this? Yeah, uh, one is the one that I haven't mentioned yet, global warming, climate change. Two, I would say is, is, is health, health, the, the awful state of health in our country. And number three would probably be education. Um, I, 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 don't, I don't think we should be thinking about the world as, as, as filled with enemies. The vast majority, I mean, yes, there are leaders of other countries who engage in horrific and terrible acts. We should, we should condemn them. But the vast majority of people in, for example, uh, Iran or China or North Korea have nothing to do with the actions of their or, or decisions of their, their, their leaders. Um, they are not, you know, 1.3 billion people in China. They're not my enemy. I'm not are there leaders in the Are there leaders in the Communist Party who are responsible for terrible human rights abuses uh, and other horrific acts? Yes, um, and I, I don't I don't like them. Um, similarly, I don't like U.S. leaders who have been responsible for millions of deaths, tens of millions of. I agree. I, I totally agree with you. War. Like you know, you're right. So, for example, a Governor Cuomo, right? Okay, he, all those lives that were lost in New York uh, in the nursing home. So you're right. So he does that, and let's just say uh, New York says everybody has to be vaccinated, or else you can't have the keys to New York. Uh, De Blasio says that, right? Okay, fine. So, but that's not New York. That's the governor of New York that's imposing those laws, right? You know, uh, Mayor Villagrosa says if you see anybody in the streets during the pandemic, we can give it two hundred dollars if you can tell us who's out there. Okay, I may not run it that way, but that's how he runs it. I don't think the people of LA are bad, but I think Cuomo made bad decisions. I think Villagrosa made bad decisions. You can look at different governors that made bad decisions in different states. I don't say, you know, Florida's bad, Texas is bad, Illinois is bad, California is bad, New York is bad. It's the leaders at the top that are making the decisions. One doesn't have say for what de Blasio is going to do. If de Blasio says that, if you disagree with them, you can't say anything about it. Those are the rules that he's... Uh, uh, selling to the people. But what I'm asking you is, which countries do you see as U.S.'s enemies, not the people who live in that country, but the leaders who run those countries? Which ones concern you? I, again, I, I think I, I am a little cautious of this framing of enemies, because so often this has been used to, to demonize not just leaders, but entire populations. I mean, this is part of why, part of why 
we've seen growing anti-Asian, anti-Asian American uh, sentiment in this country um, because of the demonization of China writ large. People don't say the Chinese Communist Party rarely or the Chinese government. They tend to just say China. And then we tend to think of the entire country as our enemy. This is what happened during the Cold War. People, I, I grew up thinking that Russians were my enemy and they weren't my enemy. There were Soviet leaders and like US leaders who were responsible for fueling the Cold War. You don't think it's um, so, to know which personalities we have to look out for? Like, absolutely. But, but I think we should be, we need to be really specific about which just leaders. Give the name. Don't why. give the country, just give the name. Like who are top three influential uh, world leaders you worry about outside of America? Yeah, I, I think that the Chinese government is, is obviously the, the next most powerful government in the world. So so there are things to be concerned about, about the, the Chinese government, similarly the Russian government, powerful, but pale, both governments, both countries, they pale in comparison to the power of the Soviet Union during the Cold War. It's important to point out. People again are, are, are creating China as, as a whole into a, a threat that, that it does not represent. It does not have the military power that the Soviet Union had. It is not a global, military power the way the Soviet Union was, does had, not pose. H-A-D, had, like past tense. That's right, that's right. right. Um, because Soviet Union dissolved, you know, 30 years ago. Yep, yep. Um, Russia, similarly, has nothing, the, other than nuclear weapons, it does not represent anything like the threat that the Soviet Union uh, posed. And again, that's part of why I'm concerned about the framing of enemies, because uh, again, it, it, it tends to encourage people to sort of turn their, their brains off, I fear, um, to just sort of think with fear clouding their minds, rather than thinking about, okay, let, let's assess the relative threat that this country and its military, for example, or other parts of its its government, like cyber, its cyber threat, what threat does it actually pose to us? And how can we protect ourselves? And how can we respond? Uh, I think, you know, so much of our foreign policy is, 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 is guided by, by fear, and often fear mongering, the exaggeration of threat, um, rather than a, a careful analysis of, of what threats are, are, are out there in the world. And, and putting them into a, a larger spectrum of threats that include threats like global warming. Um, they're distracting us from addressing threats like global warming that, that are, are truly existential threats that, that as a world, we need, to, we need to work with China. We need to work with China and Russia and other governments around the world to address the threats that are facing all of us. Otherwise, all this fear-mongering is just going to lead to more war, more conflict, more tension that distracts us from addressing the real threats, the real problems that are facing all of us. How, do you, do How do you do that if we don't uh, lead and govern by the same values and principles? I mean, you would agree that you, you don't support the way the CCP governs their people, right? Correct. Okay. So, you know, for them, they're more about controlling their populace. We're more about freedom of speech. We're more about free press. We're more about, look, we can sit there and argue. All, we can, there's, a, there's a business model for making fun of presidents in America. I mean, let's face it. It's just comedians do better if the president is more funny. You know, if it's easier to make fun of them. You can become famous if you can make fun of the president. 
you do that in China, you, you, you're going to have a very short lifespan if you do that. But the, it, it, to me, the basis of negotiation is based on you and I sharing common values and principles. If you and I share common values and principles, we can negotiate. If you and I don't share common values and principles, it's mathematically impossible to negotiate. Because for example, um, here's one of the concerns I have with America versus China, okay? Uh, and I'm curious to know what you say about this. I, I, I'm actually really curious what you say about this. So uh, uh, David, are you by any chance married? I am, I don't know if you are married or not. I'm not. Okay, I'm married. So I'm married and I have four kids, right? I got a nine, seven, five, and I just had a new one five weeks ago, newborn. Okay, so our family's very busy and it's loud. Thank you. It's loud, it's crazy, and good luck with sleep. Last time we had sleep was a decade ago. But so my wife and I, we get into fights, many fights. Husband and wife, you're going to get into a lot of fights, arguments. I can only imagine what would happen to my personal life if my wife and I fought and we had Facebook Live on the entire time. It'd be very entertaining. It'd get millions of views. It would be pretty intense. It would be a nice show if it wasn't like one of these Truman shows and it's not an act, but a real, like I got Facebook Live everywhere. You see all the fights. If a person wanted to come in between my wife and I to help con uh, cause a divorce, it'd be very easy because you know all our laundry, dirty laundry, because you see all our fights on a Facebook live every one of them you've seen on a facebook live so you'll know how to poke me you'll know how to poke her if you're a girl you're trying to get me to be like well remember that one time your wife said this i would never do that to you you would never do that to me no you know vice versa you don't understand what i'm saying here like if a person really didn't want it to come in between us i think america fights politicians they fight on a facebook live our dirty laundry is out there everybody knows about it when's the last time you saw china's politicians fight on a facebook live you don't know any of their fights and their bickering because they do it behind closed doors. If we wanted to negotiate with a country like China, they will not let Facebook in. They will not let Twitter in. They will not get YouTube in. They will not let any of those social media platforms in there because God forbid, if we really find out what's going on in China, they're about censoring. They're about silencing. They're about dictating. They're not about giving you the freedom. So don't you think that makes it difficult for a country to negotiate with another, another country that doesn't believe in the same values and principles that you follow? It makes it difficult, but I think unfortunately, many of the patterns you're identifying the behavior of the Chinese Communist Party are patterns and practices that are not so uncommon in the United States. I mean, the NSA has been spying on us. We came to know this. Um, there is a large surveillance state in the, let alone fate, I mean, Facebook, we know, has been spying on us. Um, our corporations spy on us. Um, we live in a surveillance society here in the United States, so, so we shouldn't fool ourselves that, you know, do we live in China? No, there are freedoms that we enjoy, um, but we should, we should be careful. Similarly, you know, some of the, the, the values that the United States, U.S. leaders have uh, clearly embraced, values like invading other countries, are values that, that the Chinese Communist Party has avoided. Uh, when was the last time the China, Chinese Communist Party waged a war outside its borders? 1979. Last war China was involved in outside its borders was 1979 for one month with Vietnam, one month. Chinese Communist Party has pursued a different policy that has focused on building up its economic strengths. 
seems like it's been pretty effective. Meanwhile, the United States has been squandering literally trillions of dollars on wars that have only created more danger for the United States, that have diverted money from addressing the real needs we, we face. And just to get back to your question of diplomacy, we can't choose who we negotiate with. We can't choose the people on the other side of the diplomatic table. We have to engage with other countries, other leaders where they are. And that is a complicated task, but we have to, we have to embrace diplomacy. We have to choose another path to avoid this, again, as I've said, this pattern of permanent perpetual war that is only harming ourselves and harming people around the world. Did you hear uh, uh, pre, uh, the, the uh, President Xi's message at their 100 years celebrating the CCP? Did you hear his message, what he said? I did. What do you think about it? Pretty motivational speech. <laughs> motivational. Um, you know, uh, Chinese leaders, like other, other leaders, like US leaders, uh, tend to uh, exaggerate the threats of others um, for their own domestic political benefit. Um, and they tend to engage in, you know, especially male leaders, I have to say, is another dimension we haven't talked about. A lot of this conversation is shaped by, by, by gender and, and male posturing by male leaders. Um, and I think that's a lot of what he was engaged in. President Trump obviously was, was very good at, you know, trying to show how, uh, how big a man he was. Um, and I think this is, this is part of the problem, male leaders trying to, to prove their manliness. Um, Again, we shouldn't dis, we shouldn't uh, take the words of a leader and turn it into a threat that it isn't that it doesn't represent. The Chinese military, again, as you you mentioned earlier, uh, the United States military budget is at least three times the size of the Chinese military budget. The Chinese military is nothing of the threat. Again, the Soviet Union was. Its capabilities are do not come close to rivaling that of the United States in, in so many respects, including nuclear. Um, the Chinese military is a very small nuclear threat. Um, so, uh, you know, I, I think we need to be really careful about the kind of fear mongering that's going on about China in particular. And one of the, I, th I think the top of our list of foreign policy priorities has to be the avoidance of war with China. I think there are far too many people in the United States who are inflating the threat of China, which is creating a kind of self-fulfilling prophecy, it runs the risk of creating a self-fulfilling prophecy. You know, how would, how would US leaders respond if China started building dozens of military bases near US borders? The United States military surrounds China's borders with hun literally hundreds of military bases and has been building up its presence in East Asia in the Western Pacific. How would, how would US leaders respond if the shoe was on the other foot? There would be a call for a massive military buildup. Our inflation of, Chinese, of the Chinese threat is leading to an aggressive military posture vis-a-vis -vis China, which is only encouraging them to spend more on their military in an escalating cycle. And this, you know, again, runs the risk of being a self-fulfilling prophecy and bringing about a war between the United States and China that really should be incomprehensible, that the two wealthiest countries on earth, the two largest military spenders on earth, the two nuclear armed powers that they could 
engage in a war and that it wouldn't go completely out of control. I mean, it would look, make the catastrophe of the last 20 years of war look small. We have to avoid this escalation of tension with China, military tension with China and other tensions. And we have to avoid war with China at all costs. I got to tell you, you come across as a very sweet man. Very. I can use the word sweet. Okay. I'm being serious. When's your birthday, by the way? When is your birthday? Um, November, November 25th. So you're Sagittarius. Okay. Got it. So I'm, I'm October 18th. So uh, uh, I, I listen, I, I, uh, uh, you, you sound like the type of person I love you to be at the house, you know, have dinner, have a <laughs> glass of wine. I think we'd have a fascinating conversation, but yeah. there's a part of me that thinks, you know, and uh, Andy Grove one time wrote a book in the eighties or nineties. He said, only the paranoid survive. Uh, I think there's a there's a bit of paranoia necessary against our enemies. The, sh- the speech I was talking about was when Xi got up and he said, uh, uh, only socialism can save China and only socialism with Chinese characteristics can develop China. Uh, we will never allow anyone to bully, oppress, or subjugate China. So far, it's fine. Great. I understand. I'd want my leader to believe that as well. And then anyone who dares to try that will have their heads bashed bloody against the great wall of steel forged by over 1.4 billion Chinese. I mean, he went from civil protected to straight up gangsters, what he went to. I mean, at the end, I'm like, the Italian mob just came out at the end. Uh, uh, Maybe he's a little bit of too much of Godfather. But what do you think about that? Was that like a noble message? No, of course, that's not a noble message. And that's, again, the kind of sort of macho bluster and posturing and mafia style. An American president can get away with that? That is completely, how are we going to respond? I mean, you can respond by escalating the language. Biden or other leaders can respond by, you know, responding in, in kind. And then that just leads to an escalation. I, I, I agree with that part. I agree. But, but you know, I think we should pay more attention to, you know, what, what what's, what's more gangster, you know, a little sort of smack talking, macho smack talking or building and maintaining literally hundreds of military bases yeah, near the yeah. borders of China. I mean, and, and, and you know, flying, uh, you know, bomber missions near the borders of China, sending aircraft carriers nor- near near China's coast. Do, do we see any Chinese aircraft carriers well, I mean, off the coast of California? I don't, no, I don't, I don't think no. so. That, that's yeah. gangster-like behavior. I, and it's only encouraging the kind of uh, you know, macho talk that we're, we're seeing. What, what, do you, what do you think about the conspiracy theory John Stewart pitched on Stephen Colbert talking about the fact that the virus could be man-made? Um, I, I saw that. That was an interesting uh, conversation because they cl- clearly disagreed. I, I, think, um, I, I think clearly more research needs to be done to, to figure out the, 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 where this virus came from. Um, but I, I, I'm, I'm, I was a little disturbed by John Stewart's certainty about the, the origin of, of this coronavirus, yeah. um, especially because it has fueled anti-Asian, anti-Chinese sentiment um, and, and violence against, yeah. against Asian Americans in this country. I, I think I'm kind of with you. When, when leaders have a little too much certainty, on any topic concerns the hell out of me. Like, you know, being that certain that the vaccine is 100% great and not giving you an out, that's also a little bit like too much. Like, I, 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 tell me, like when I was in the military, I got in and I'm like, okay, hey guys, you guys got to take these 11 shots. Why? Your government property. Okay. So I took the anthrax shot. Every one of those shots, you know, sometimes I wonder I'm a little bit off because the military, you know, shots I took. Uh, and we were all worried that one of our hands is going to get bigger than the other one. You know, we would play these jokes with each other, what these things are going to do. Obviously nothing happened. 
But, you know, I think I'm with you on that side. I just, I just hope, by the way, let's just say it was something intentional. Let's just say that, you know, we go and we do it and say it comes back and, and John Stewart is right. What should happen to China? Should we just look away and say, guys, you guys were bad. Terrible job. Please don't do it again. What do you think we should do? I don't think anyone is saying that it was intentional on the part of the Chinese government. I mean, you know, how many people have died in China right now? They're dealing with a new surge in, in, in infections. Um, I, I think the, the accusation is that it accidentally escaped from this laboratory. And, you know, in, in theory, that, that is possible. Um, and if, if it was, you know, if it was because of lax security protocols or some sort of accident, um, you know, those responsible should be, you know, held responsible. And I, I think, you know, financially responsible and, and, and otherwise. Um, but right now, we, there is no conclusive evidence that the Chinese government or a Chinese lab is responsible for this coronavirus. Um, but if we it, find it, it should, if we find it, should we put them in the timeout room? No, we should just invade them. You and I, That's me and you, we go together. Me and you, we dress up as GI Joes and we go out there and, and go up against David Vine and Patrick Bay. David invade China next on CNN. It's a, it does sound like a, you know one of those comical movies. Yeah. Um, no, again, I, I think we have to we have to choose a, a different path, and 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 I, I hope. Um, maybe if, if, if people take away nothing from our, our conversation, uh, nothing else, that, that you know, the, 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 this path that the United States, that U.S. leaders have pursued for the last 20 years and really throughout U.S. history has been catastrophic, but especially in the last 20 years. And uh, again, not for reasons of nobility, but for reasons of protecting people in the United States and people around the world, we need to stop fighting. Yeah, we I need to choose a different path. I, I, the fact that you're having this topic, I think it, it, it sparks a conversation and I think we need to have that because again, for me, I was blown away that we have 750 military bases in 80 plus countries. And I was blown away that a lot of our budget is being used in old way of going to war 40 years ago, 50 years ago, while in China, they're sitting out there saying, look, we don't need to spend the money that America's using. Why don't we teach ourselves cyber warfare, bio warfare? They're taking a complete different route. America's not. America's saying, hey, why don't we go, you know. And they're laughing at us. Yeah, they're, of course. Uh, by the way, I agree with you. I, I'm also laughing at the approach U.S. military is taking on the way they're fighting today and uh, not preparing for the kind of war that we may face 10, 20, 30, 40 years from now. That's how we need to play our defense. Sometimes the biggest part is... You know, when, when people in high school know you can fight, sometimes the best part about avoiding fights is as long as the other guy knows you can whoop his ass. That's all that matters sometimes. As long as you, either they know you can whoop their ass or they know that your uncle, your brother, your cousin, or your best friend is a guy you don't want to fight. Because if you do, it's going to be fight. You can avoid 99% of fights if one of those two things is on your side. So yeah, I think what I'm saying is, David, I think what I'm proposing is I think you and I need to go become best friends with Mike Tyson, okay? And then just tell everybody about it. On our Twitter profile says, if you mess with me, my best friend is Mike Tyson. He will whoop yeah. your tail. Yeah, no, and it's, it's almost like U.S. leaders have had some sort of, uh, you know, profound insecurity and needed to demonstrate that military power. Of course, when they've done so, it's been completely counterproductive in so many ways, including, you know, how many wars has the United States won in the last 20 years? Uh, zero. 
um, you know, all they've done is to demonstrate the inadequacies of the US military, while, of course, undermining our security in, in, in profound ways, taking the lives of, you know, tens of thousands of people in the United States and, and you know, millions of people in the war zones where the US military has been deployed. Now, let me just say one last thing that, that you know, I, I'm not alone in, in holding these sorts of views. There are a growing number of people across the political spectrum who come to similar conclusions that we need a profoundly different strategy. It's not just, you know, leftist folks like me. There are, you know, anti-imperialist Republicans and libertarians coming to similar conclusions. Uh, and that's part of what encourages me that, you know, these aren't just sort of noble ideas, but that there are a growing number of people who want to see the United States take another path and, and, and that the United States can um, and, and really must. There, we, we have to have a sense of urgency of, of transforming US foreign policy and transforming uh, and ending the, 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 the endless wars um, or else I, I, I fear as a country and as, as people were doomed. David, you seem very sincere. You seem you're coming from a very good place. And you seem somebody that really wants to uh, make this place a better place. And I support uh, uh, that becoming a reality. How we go about doing it, uh, the more the opposing sides have debates, I think the more closer we'll get to a better resolution. The more we avoid the talk, the less likely it's going to be happening. Recently, I just put out something. I don't know if you saw that or not. I said, uh, uh, I announced uh, a week ago, I'll give $5 million. Two and a half million dollars to President Obama, two and a half million dollars to President Trump to have them sit down together for that money goes to any charity they want just to get these two men in uh, uh, sitting against each other for three hours to have a conversation together on how we can unify America. Again, the more we have opposing people in the room together, I think we'll make progress. The more we avoid the conflict and the conversation, the more divided we'll be. So once again, appreciate you for coming on and uh, sharing your uh views with us. And, you know, I, I gave you some tough questions. I pushed back a little bit, but you were a class act about it. And I respect you for that. Uh, folks, if you haven't ordered this book, I'm going to put the link below the United States of War, a global history of America's endless conflicts from Columbus to Islamic State. That link will be below. And the name is David Vine. We'll also put his link if you want to go to Twitter and let him know uh, that you watched today's interview. that will be great as well. David, thank you so much for being a guest on Valuetainment. Patrick, this is so much fun. Um, thank you for the great questions and the, and the time. Anytime, anytime. Take care. Take care. Do you agree with them? Do you say we get rid of everybody? We get rid of military, all the military bases. Should we do that? Should we all be noble, working very nicely with each other? Is there threats? Are they not enemies? I'm curious. Really like them, but I want to know how you, uh, what you took away from the interview. Comment below. And then on top of that, I got two interviews I want you to watch. If you want insane entertainment, probably the shortest interview I've ever done. I've never had anybody curse me out. This was the first the one and only person ever, if you've never seen it, my friend, Lucian Tresca. You can see the connection we have together in 27 minutes. In, in a minute, you'll be entertained when you see the intro. But the other one is with Elliot uh, uh, Ackerman uh, uh, that we did an interview with. He wrote a book called 20, I think it's 2042 or 2043, some, some book, line, 2034, some number like that. But if you've never seen it, it's a fantastic book about what the next war would look like and who would be involved. If you've not seen that, Click over here to watch it. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.